You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. All right, everybody, welcome to episode 98 of Here for the Truth podcast. We have Dr. Andrew Kaufman in the house. He is a public speaker, researcher, natural healing practitioner, business and homeschooling consultants, inventor, and COVID-19 whistleblower. Dr. Andy has a BS from MIT in biology and completed his psychiatric training at Duke University Medical Center after graduating from the Medical University of South Carolina. He spent many years in the medical field and practiced as a forensic psychiatrist and expert witness. When he learned that many of the modern medical practices were harming people and not helping them, he gave up his lucrative medical career and began researching and understanding the relationship between body, mind, and spirit and how to use nature to heal your own body. Dr. Andy's new practice is spreading truth about the world we live in today and fighting for freedom. He teaches people the vital knowledge that they need to implement true care for themselves and their families at the highest level of consciousness. He now teaches people how to become their own health authority. Dr. Andy, such a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for being here for the truth. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, I uh, really appreciate you being here. Uh, really excited. Uh, I know uh, at the beginning of 2020, you, you were a big voice in challenging the COVID narrative. And something we'd like to do with uh, our uh, first-time guests is we want to get a little into your story, your major rites of passage, your hero's journey. What, what led you to obviously going through the medical center, the medical system, and you know, evolving you know, your thoughts and your beliefs and coming to a place where what happened over the last few years you were speaking out about and you continue to? Well, you know, it's really kind of a long journey that uh, began even before medical school. I started doing clinical medicine as a physician assistant, and I worked with uh, cancer patients and bone marrow transplants. And it was, you know, very uh, saddening to see that hardly any of those uh, individuals really recovered. Uh, some of them had a little bit of time, but mostly I was just, you know, watching people die as they're going through this treatment. And what I really enjoyed about it was the connection to the individual patients who are going through the dying process and the ability to help them kind of achieve some uh, peace and closure to prepare for their death. So that kind of led me to be interested in psychiatry when I went back to medical school. And when I was training at Duke, uh, we had this special seminar and it was uh, called a critical appraisal that uh, we would pick different articles in the literature, like mostly they were related to psychiatric uh, drug trials because we were learning psychiatry, but you could do this with really any type of article. And we would kind of look at the methods used in the experiment and scrutinize it and then say, you know, does, are the conclusions valid? And we learned a lot of kind of tricks and techniques that are used to make something look uh, better than it is. <laughs> or make it look like it works if it doesn't work. And I actually had some exper direct experiences uh, seeing those things at play with various researchers who were like trying to recruit some of the patients from a service that I was working on into their study, um, you know, to see how that kind of played out. Like for an example, they did a study looking at antidepressants with uh, people who had heart disease or who, who had suffered a heart attack and this guy came in with a sort of problem uh, and he had a heart attack in the past, but the problem was that his kind of deadbeat 
um, drug addict gambling son had showed up and wouldn't leave his house. <laughs> and you can't really fix that with a drug, but they knew that if they gave him the drug and then also helped him fix the problem with some like social support, that he would get better and then it would make the drug look good, right? So there's all these kinds of things that happen that, that you don't realize is going on behind the scenes. So then when I was actually practicing um, psychiatry, I saw that, you know, the patients weren't getting better. And this is also what we kind of concluded after doing those appraisals of the research literature, but it was weird to observe the contradiction that it didn't change the practice of the doctors who are supervising this group. Like we would review a study and like, for example, there was a study published with a bunch of clinical trial data on antidepressants that was submitted to the FBA and they got it through a Freedom of Information Act request and then combined all of the studies into one data set. So it was really kind of a powerful analysis. And the conclusion was essentially that the only benefit of antidepressants is as a placebo. And we all agreed on this, but then, you know, the next day we had to go and prescribe those same drugs that we were told, you know, by the same people who agreed with that conclusion told us to then go prescribe those drugs. So it was kind of really frustrating. And I tried to focus on, you know, psychotherapy and other modalities, but the system just expected me to prescribe over and over again. And ultimately I was able to work in a, in a place where they allowed me to take kids off of psychiatric drugs. And I was doing this kind of job when I discovered the work of Kelly Brogan and she mm. actually used nutrition. And so I kind of tried this with a couple of people, like not my patients, but you know, like friends and myself, and there was just amazing results. So that set me on a path to study natural healing, nutrition, detoxification, things like that. And when COVID came around was just after I started investigating germ theory. So when I heard, you know, these rumors, and then I saw um, these passengers at a California airport wearing masks in the United States, you know, like Americans, um, I became very concerned and started, you know, doing some research. I read Nancy Turner Banks' book, uh, AIDS, Opium, Diamond, and Empire. And then I just dove in to like look at the actual scientific papers where they said that they discovered the virus and I saw everything was uh, upside down and unscientific. And that kind of led me on a path of speaking out and of uh, exiting the mainstream medical system. Uh, you know, I got fired from my uh, contract eventually for over the mask issue. And then I just totally transitioned my career, left medicine behind, uh, you know, uh, turned in my license and, uh, you know, changed everything for me. It's amazing, man. It's really, really incredible. Why do you think other, other, professionals, other MDs, people you worked with, people you went to school with. Why do you think so many people are so entrenched in the dogma and won't like see beyond it or won't challenge their belief systems or allow their beliefs to be challenged? Right. Well, you know, I think there are many factors. And of course, every individual has their own unique story. But the system of education and indoctrination uh, of which MDs and, and DOs are created 
is actually really contains a lot of um, rituals that influence the behavior, right? So one is that they make you poor by taking out massive debt, mm -hmm. right? And then this continues even beyond the tuition because as soon as you finally graduate and you get a big salary, then, you know, what do you do? You get a mortgage, you get car loans, right? So it, it perpetuates itself. And then that keeps you in a state where you always have to keep working and earning and working and earning. And then they have the system set up with constraints. Like, you know, everything now is through insurance and more and more physicians are employed. So you don't have the opportunity to set your own prices for your own services. Right. Imagine, imagine doing that as a professional, like you, you know, let's say you're a carpenter, but, um, you know, someone told you how much you can charge and it didn't matter if that was feasible for your business or if it allowed you to buy the raw materials of the wood that you needed, right. You just, you couldn't go, you couldn't charge anything else. They would just tell you what the price was. Yeah, it's like a certain you know, social system starting with C. Exactly. Exactly. And so in order then to make your overhead and have a profit and pay off all that debt, you have to see more and more patients in less and less time. And there are some doctors who routinely spend six minutes per patient. Now, you, you can imagine that's not enough time to get enough information to know what's going on with someone. Right. And um, you can't yeah. really. So all you can do is take a few you know, details. And then what are you doing? You're prescribing tests and drugs, tests and drugs. And you're just going by that instead of understanding what's going on with an individual um, who's there. And this leads to, you know, poor outcomes. So I saw, you know, terrible outcomes <laughs> in all of my experience in medicine. So for the average uh, doctor, you're you're not really having time to think about these things. You're just trying to see more and more patients. You're trying to do the right thing. You believe that you're doing the right thing because, you know, why would you, like, you know, a lot of us went into medicine because we wanted to do something useful for the world. I mean, you know, granted, there are, are a percentage that did it for selfish reasons, but, you know, uh, by and large, I think most people really, you know, they, they think they're doing a good thing. And, you know, if you believe that, why would you, why would you question it? Right. It's like you have to have a reason, like something has to uh, bring it about. And certainly, you know, COVID would be something that could bring that out uh, for sure. And it did for many um, physicians. But then the other part of it is that if you question things too much or go against the grain, you realize that you, you can't actually participate in the system any longer. You know, how could I continue to be a doctor when? I now know that all pharmaceuticals are poison, right? I can't go and give and poison people once I know that that's what I'm doing. So I have to then figure out, you know, uh, redefine my life. Like, you know, most of us, when, when we make the commitment to go through all the schooling, take on all the debt of medical school, we, we you know, expect that that's going to be our only career for the rest of our life. We're not going to have to reinvent the wheel or take risks or do something different. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to tell you actually that you can do this successfully. And if you do it for the right reason, that you will be rewarded and that you will continue to be able to make a living. But it's very daunting for most people. And I think, uh, you know, it's scary and it, it brings about this cognitive dissonance that, well, if I acknowledge this truth, I can't go and do this thing, which is part of my identity. 
Yeah. And, you know, so it threatens you at a, a core level. Do you have like colleagues or ex-colleagues that, you know, are aware <laughs> that all pharmaceuticals are poison and yet they continue to, to push them? Like they have, they have that well, level of awareness, yet the truth is still out. They refuse to go there. Um, you know, there people ch can change and succumb to things over time. Uh, like, for example, in child psychiatry, right? That that's like a subspecialty of psychiatry um, that just you know deals with children and adolescents uh, principally. And most psychiatrists are kind of very skittish about giving psych drugs to children. And this whole idea of having extra training is so you really understand the vulnerabilities of children and you're very delicate about it, right? And people, I've known some people who chose that because they wanted to, you know, be the kind of safeguard for the children that, in that manner. But what happens is, is that, that all they do is prescribe as in child psychiatry training. And so they just make them really comfortable and they give huge doses of meds and combinations of meds to kids. And really it's like, they're, they're the ones that do the dirty work. And so I've seen some people kind of go through that trajectory. Um, I've, I've seen some good people also reject that, but they're very few and far between. And they tend to uh, leave the center, central kind of uh, institutions and work out on the periphery. Like there was someone who was a faculty member at the same medical school that I was who went through that um, kind of trajectory. And we had some discussions about that, but I wasn't ready to be that radical, mm -hmm. you know, at that time. Um, and I, and I also focused on research and I focused on expert witness work um, rather than clinical work, so I could, you know, not be involved in prescribing uh, as many drugs. And then there were other, you know, uh, people who are really on the margins, uh, like Dr. Peter Bregan, for example, who you may have heard of, who's been speaking out against psychiatric medicines for a long time. And, you know, I knew people who knew him, and, you know, I saw him at certain conferences that I was at. And, um, you know, and I spoke on a panel with Robert Whitaker, who uh, wrote a couple of excellent books about uh, mental illness uh, in, the in the United States, including uh, Anatomy of an Epidemic, uh, which I would highly recommend. So I was already kind of aligned with some of the other people who are critical of mainstream psychiatry, but, you know, but it was, they were very few and far between. So when I, um, you know, became sort of a whistleblower uh, about the the COVID pandemic. Most of my former colleagues that I went to school with or that I was close with, uh, you know, flat out uh, uh, rejected me or some of them were kind of vicious <laughs> in, in their words. And, uh, you know, they distanced themselves from me, of course. But then I made uh, a lot of new acquaintances of other individuals who on their path you know, came to the same conclusions. In fact, I just did an interview last week on Sons of Liberty uh, uh, show with a British psychiatrist, Dr. Ajaz, um, who I never met before. And like, um, I think it was through nurse Kate Shemirani that she met him and then introduced us. And he was a forensic psychiatrist and he practically you know, came to the same conclusions about psychiatry and also went a lot deeper. He even was knowledgeable um, about some uh, government in, you know, and psychiatric collaboration experimenting on uh, citizens and things like that. So, you know, I think the environment has 
uh, brought some people together who have come to that conclusions, but we're a very, very tiny minority because of, you know, the unwillingness to go outside and, and uh, you know, re, remake yourself in a, a, a better image and, and uh, risk losing all of the notoriety and uh, financial remuneration. Yeah. It's really, um, when you look into the psychology of heroism, you know, there is that element for people that go on this hero's journey and, you know, they slay those, those inner dragons, I guess you can say, and, and they go through a lot of difficult times to, again, like you said, like so much money that's left on the table, you know, getting hit piece articles written on you left and right, you know, navigating that, like, what is it? What is a person has to have a certain level of spirit of psycho-emotional fortitude to, to be a whistleblower. So, you know, so much respect for you and other people like that, that, that continue to speak out. Um, yeah, it's pretty incredible. So thank you. Much gratitude. Hmm. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to comment too, is this is what happens when you, when you don't stand on the sidelines, when you do speak truth, you call in your community yeah. of, of like-minded people. And it's like, you know, I've been playing my part in speaking out against a lot of things that are going on in the world for 15 plus years. And because of that, I've, I've connected with the most incredible human beings that are so aligned in, in this, in this fight for truth. And, you know, when you don't do that, then, you know, you're sitting there twiddling your thumbs and you're like, well, why am I not around the people that I want to be around? Why don't I have the community that I have? And yet you, you, you speak with truth and strength and self-knowing and miracles happen. Like the last two and a half years, yes, there's been challenges, but there's also been so much magic. You know, I, I you know, I, I met Joel through through this process. You know, connecting with some of our mutual friends that we have has been because of this, and and it, it's really, it's really empowering um, to 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 do that. So I don't know. I love it. Well, I, and I, I completely agree. I mean, you know, I I now have like a huge network. I mean, it's really international. At least at least Europe you know, Mexico, Canada, and the United States, <laughs> uh, and Australia, uh, and New Zealand, actually, I've made lots of, uh, connections there. And even, you know, some in strange places, uh, like, you know, uh, Kenya and, um, uh, sorry, UAE, you know, <laughs> so, um, there, there are definitely, you know, uh, individuals all over and it is great to sort of come together. And, you know, that's why I really love going to, in-person conferences and events, because then, you know, you get that sort of, because we're, we tend to be a bit spread out, right? Like you guys are, aren't exactly uh, neighbors <laughs> mm. <laughs> that you can uh, hang out on the back deck and, you know, grill steaks together or zucchinis, whatever. Uh, right. But, um, so when, you know, you have these opportunities, but, uh, but it really is amazing that, um, you know, that there are a lot of folks out there who have taken the steps to try to learn about the world and question things and uh, not, you know, just sit down and do what they're told. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What do you think, like, um, how do you think this unfolds for, for the Western medicine machine? Like, do you think that more and more people just slowly leave, they slowly, you know, leave the cage, they excommunicate themselves and the thing just starts to get fested um, and collapse on itself? Do you think there's a revolution that can happen from inward, from inside it? Like, how does this unfold in your perspective in terms of more truth coming out about what's really going on? Right. Well, you know, it's, um, of course, uh, I'm not able to predict the future, but you can kind of look at what has been happening, which is that, 
you know, individuals have been losing faith in the mainstream medical system. And that's why you see the popularity of all these kind of supplements, right? You hear people talking about the, the gut biome, right? Which is a, a key, um, you know, not a determinant, but it's, it's a key aspect of health. Um, and, you know, we can certainly talk about things like that in more detail. So it's like there is a subconscious knowing that it's not just the medical system that has all the answers. I mean, you know, if you really look at it, is there anything that they have a cure for? I remember being a little child and, you know, oh my God, there's a revolution in the science of biology. It's going to cure every disease in the future. You know, now fast forward uh, 50 years, I, I still don't see any diseases that they can cure. But, you know, in natural healing, a totally different thing. You, you see this all the time that people can cure themselves of diseases uh, once they just support what their body's doing instead of keeping poisoning it, right? So at, at some point, um, you know, it's going to become more and more obvious. And then over the last couple of years, you see that where now it's the services are more limited or dependent on other things. And now you have this kind of surveillance, right? That it's all about these infectious diseases and, and who has those and that you can't get any other healthcare without being assessed for those. And just now we had the G20 uh, summit where all of the countries agreed to institute um, vaccination passports for international travel. So you have that kind of agenda coming from like, you know, the UN and the World Economic Forum and the other global powers like the G20 summit um, and many others. But then on the other hand, you have people now were already starting to be skeptical that there's something more than the medical system. And now they're like been cut out or realized that it's dependent on surveillance and other things. You know, you can't get an x-ray for your uh, you know, swollen ankle unless you get a COVID test first or these kinds of things. So it pushed a lot of people out. And I've seen, you know, tons and tons of interest looking outside the system. So I think there's a real opportunity to bring about a paradigm shift. And that's what I'm, you know, working all my efforts towards and uh, with, you know, many, many others are as well to try to bring that about and, you know, revolutionize um, how, you you know, people can get really truly healthy um, instead of being maintained with uh, manageable symptoms for the rest of their life. Yeah. I, I kind of want to, I'm so curious. I want to ask you this and I'm kind of rewinding a little bit, but was there something in like your childhood or the way you were raised or something like that had an impact <laughs> on your spirit that like, again, when, you, when you're in the minority, when, when you see things in a different way, like I'm always curious, like, what is that? Like for, for instance, I grew up, my parents were born and raised in Greece. You know, they came from the old country. I was surrounded by good, healthy cooking. But even, I remember I grew up in the diner business. My dad had a diner in New Jersey. And I remember there was a waitress there once who like was telling everyone she like healed cancer and she had all these like herbs and I don't know, psychology books. And people thought she was crazy. And yet I was like, she's cool. I like her. And, and I was, a, I was, and I was a kid. So like, I'm just curious, like if there was some influence that, that planted the seed within you. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's really very um, interesting because uh, I've been trying to look at my past and see, you know, how can I explain that I 
was open to these things. And, uh, you know, or just, you know, in general, how do you differentiate between people who wake up to these realities versus those who continue to stay in the matrix? And I can't put my finger on anything. You know, I, I had a terrible diet uh, when I was a kid. I was in bad health. I had severe allergy problems. I was always chubby. You know, I got all this uh, sugar cereal and candy and soda. Like, I don't think I drank water ever. It was either, you know, orange juice or soda, um, you know, until I started drinking beer. And, uh, you know, there was so there was no real concern about that. Um, you know, there was everyone was a little overweight. And I was fascinated by nature. Like I wanted to know how everything worked. I was a very curious kid. I was un wanted to understand everything, even like adult things. I wanted to understand why, why they work this way. Um, so I think curiosity for me was very important. And I know now that, and I don't know where this comes from, but for me, like a huge motivating factor is justice. Yeah. Um, and that's why I went into forensic psychiatry actually, because I saw the injustice of people with, you know, severe mental illness being kind of warehoused in the criminal justice system. And I saw this, you know, from inside the criminal justice system, uh, as well during my career, but that it was that, that attracted me to it because I wanted to see, you know, could I, um, you know, provide some degree of justice for that population. Um, and I did various things. Even at one point, I tried to collaborate with Human Rights Watch, uh, which I now mm. know is a very evil organization. <laughs> and they then they did they they didn't really. I noticed that they didn't really want to report the most important things at that time. Actually, um, but I was just frustrated. I thought it was just the individuals. So you know, so that is uh, perhaps something that could be you know a factor. But these things are all a bit. Uh, difficult to to figure mm. out, but there there is something obviously either in experience or intrinsically that uh, allows some people to go through this process. Sure. Um, what is health? <laughs> there you go. Well, that's a great uh, question because um, if you look at how it's defined in the mainstream, it's uh, definitely distinct from how I would look at it. Um, you know, I look at it as the ability to um, meet your goals in life. So you have to, you know, have a goal, of course, but that could be many things. You know, it could be to, uh, to find a mate, uh, it could be to develop your career, to have children, it could be to get rich, it could be to live a life of, uh, you know, of decadence. Um, whatever your goal is, you have to have the faculties in place in order to carry that out. Um, and that means that there's a certain degree of physical functioning, right? So I, I always want to look at the function uh, above anything else. So, you know, if you if your goal is to play with your grandchildren, for example, and they, you know, like to run around a lot, then you need to increase your fitness so you can run around with them. Um, and so you need to do things to help your body get into that. But But there's also the psycho-spiritual components. Uh, to this as well, that you have to have a level of maturity or comportment or sophistication or organization or self-discipline. So all those things come together. Um, of course, uh, it's very helpful if you have some meaning or purpose in your life from which to derive your goals from, because that provides the right inspiration for you to achieve whatever health is, is the level of functioning to carry out those goals. 
There you have it. Good answer. Yeah. But I I, I know it's great. And it's different than how I think maybe I initially expected you to answer it and how other people would talk about it. But, uh, you know, Joel and I, we talk so often in the work that we do around your value system and you're going to make your decisions around your value system. So having a goal, like what do you need to do to make your goals a reality? Um, So awesome. I'm all about being healthy as best as I can. (laughs) Like self-esteem, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, you know, this is something that really you need to take charge of, right? It's, you know, I mean, just like you need to dress yourself and bathe yourself, right? It's, uh, you need to feed yourself. It's just another kind of basic function. And if you don't pay attention to it, of course, things can get very uh, bad. And then you, you don't, they they be removed because, you know, we don't, we're not raised thinking that there's this cause and effect that that we do something and it may not, you know, not intentionally and, and not even consciously, but something that we're engaged in or exposed to can lead to a consequence. And then when we experience that consequence, we have to, you know, the main task is to try to find out, well, how did this result? Because if you know what the cause is, you can go back and change that. Right. And that that doesn't just apply to health. Right. This applies to many, many things. So like, oh, my girlfriend's leaving me. Why is that? Let me look back. You know, did I was I a good boyfriend? Did I choose the right girl? (laughs) You know, right. Like many, many things. And then you can say, okay, next time I have to be a better boyfriend or I have to choose a woman with different attributes or maybe I need to work on myself for a while before I, uh, you know, go back to dating at all. And then you can make progress. And I think people instinctively know this about all these other areas of development, but they don't think about it in terms of improving or taking accountability for their health status, right? So when you have an epidemic of diabetes or really a pandemic, right? We're talking about the the kind that uh, usually happens when you're an adult, although these days it happens in childhood, but it's Mm -hmm. type two diabetes. So the kind that at the beginning, you don't, you don't need insulin. Now, this is something that, right, is purely caused by people's diets. And it's readily reversible if they change their diet. Um, like when I've uh, given people information about how they can reverse this, they pretty much reported back that it took about three weeks and there was no more diabetes. Now, of course, if they go back to eating the same things and doing the same things, the diabetes will come back, but that's how easy it is. But what do we do instead? We, you know, have these people start taking drugs, not just drugs for the diabetes, but drugs that allegedly prevent the toxicity of diabetes from damaging other organs as fast. Like they Mm -hmm. take a blood pressure medicine to protect their kidneys from the diabetes, right? And maybe another one to protect their heart, like maybe a blood thinner. Right, and it's all because of this diabetes, and then they have to take the, those things for the rest of their life, and they and they always invariably have to add more over time because those don't uh, manage it enough. When all they needed to do was take three weeks, and it could turn the whole thing around if you looked at the situation in a totally different way—that your health is your responsibility, that this effect has a cause, and it's. Uh, the knowledge is readily available and, you know, known by many. And if you just employ that knowledge and change your behavior, boom, you can solve that problem just like you can solve all the other problems. Uh, You know, now I'm not saying you should 
go on an island and never ask for help or <laughs> or anything like that. I mean, it's important to be able to do take advantage of resources that are available to help you and even better to have family and friends who are by your side and support you um, through these things, right? But th- this is just a totally different way of thinking about it. And it allows people to recover uh, their lost function and to get back into the game of life and to achieve those goals that they're pretty much sidelined, sidelined from with, with a lot of different illnesses. Yeah. Andy, you obviously come from a history of you know, psychiatry and in the mind, what role does mindset play on all this? Because obviously food has an impact, but how would it be a person like the kind of person that that's willing to make the changes in their life to improve? How much of that is the impact on, let's say, curing disease versus just the food itself? Do you think that plays a role? Like what kind of person is the one willing to change the behavior uh, and shift things? And that that has an impact as well. Right. Well, let me uh, emphasize that, you know, when it comes to diabetes, it's the food that's the cause. Okay. But but there are many other sources uh, that of of illness um, that, that we have, right, um, coming from essentially, you know, think about any way that anything could enter your body. There's there's poisons getting in to all those channels from a variety of sources. Um but in terms of um, the other, now, remind me the second uh, the second part of that question that you were talking. Well, about. just saying, like, what is it like the kind of person that can shift their mindset? Yes, yes, right. So it's not like everyone is the kind of man or woman who can do that. It's a matter of having the commitment and the understanding that um, it's something that's going to be beneficial and that you want to commit yourself to achieve that, right? And then, uh, you know, there's, of course, acquiring the knowledge of how you do that. And there are some some psychological barriers that it's important to learn about and to take steps of how you're going to overcome because you know, many people, it's scary to change their lifestyle, like especially their diet and nutrition. Um, like, you know, I talk a lot about water fasting as one, uh, way that you can achieve amazing transformation of health in your body. And many people are just deathly afraid of going for even one day without food. But if you think about biology, that that's really indicative, it's not indicative of, of biology. It's indicative of something else because, you know, animals in nature don't eat every day even. Mm-hmm. Right. And they naturally fast when there's illness and injury. Um, but it's, you know, your body can't possibly be starving for food just going a few hours without eating. But many people have that impression. So most likely the issue that's going on with this is food addictions. And food addiction is something that's really part of our um, acculturation you know, through a variety of sources, mostly through the consumerist economy. Um, but, you know, we essentially pursue all of these pleasure foods, right, that have processed uh, carbs and added uh, sugar and um, neurochemicals, right, like um, MSG and artificial sweeteners and all these things that, that um, make these things addictive. And we don't realize that virtually all of us are affected by this. And so you have to be willing to kind of confront this issue 
to acknowledge it and to take steps to overcome it. And you may not, you know, be successful on your first try, but you can have perseverance and you can make stepwise improvements. Like that's kind of the path that I've gone through personally, because, you know, when once I realized the potency of healing this way and of taking responsibility, I began to um, experiment with different procedures, ways of doing that. Um, one, because I wanted to evaluate, you know, are these things I want to ever teach other people? You know, do they have value? But also, you know, like I wanted to improve my health. And and I've gone through a stepwise, you know, kind of pattern where, you know, I make progress and then sometimes I have setbacks. Like I have food addictions too and they come back. And, you know, I mean, you go like even at some of these kind of conferences and events, right? Uh, someone serves a big banquet and then there's, you know, and then you have a taste of it there and then you're like, oh, that wasn't so bad. And then, you know, next week you're at the grocery store and <laughs> you see a pastry, right? So we all know how this goes, but it's been less and less and better and better, you know, each time. And I can see my health improve. And and it's the ability to just say, you know, I don't have to be perfect, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start doing something today. And you can start very simple. Um, just like just improving your hydration can make immense difference. Mm, water. Too. You'll, you'll never see me without a glass of water. <laughs> what is water in here for new watching? Um, <laughs> the thing is, the overarching correlation between mindset and health, in my opinion, is that the individual has to value their life. If you don't value your life, you're not going to enact, you're not going to change your behaviors, and you're not going to do anything to move you towards that goal, what you actually want, you know? And how many people, sorry to say, do you think actually value their lives looking around you today? Yeah, there's there certainly are different levels. And, you know, working as a psychiatrist, I've seen the people, you know, who have the lowest um, self-value and yeah. self-worth, um, you know, out there in society. And and it is very disconcerting and, and very sad. And, there, you know, there are many explanations yeah. uh, for why this is happening. But, you know, one big thing that I've just seen over and over again that, you know, among the most miserable people who are engaged in psychiatric treatment, you know, often against their will, is that they had a horrible traumatic family life growing up. Like their childhood was marked by trauma, neglect, and even worse if there was sexual um, trauma in the mix. Yeah, definitely. I mean, not to mention, no one's really taught to value the self. You know, we're all we're all taught that our, our moral worth is based on everything we do for someone else, right? That's what that's what makes us good. That's what makes us holy. Anything that we do for the self, you know, is selfish to a degree. Um, and so I think underlying all of it as well, there's this inherent guilt in putting yourself first, even when it comes to your health. You know, sure, sacrifice, but people people sacrifice to a degree that's actually damaging to the self itself. I mean, and I think this is like a bit of deeper conditioning, which a lot of people are probably dealing with as well. Yes, absolutely. You're absolutely correct. And, uh, you know, I always, when this comes up, I think of uh, when you're on an airplane and they're giving you those instructions and they say, yeah. you know, secure your own mask first, yeah. right? And that that's what um, people are neglecting. They are just, you know, working uh, out there, you know, half masked, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Andy, what are you, like, what are you most excited about, like, right now? in your life, in the work you're doing, what, like your optimism for what this world can be when you see 
people speaking at when you see people standing in their truth like what do you like what's what's lighting you up right now well you know it's it's really um it's the individuals out there who i see taking charge of their own health and then you know having amazing results and you know it's more than that because people are so bogged down many times for a long time with a variety of health problems that, you know, it, they don't have the energy, they're in pain all the time, they can't participate, you know, in the things that they want to. And then when they go through this process where they, you know, they finally get to that point, you see them then doing other amazing things. Like beyond, they're not just going back to their normal functioning because mm -hmm. now they're really inspired. And so they then get involved in something new that in turn brings another contribution to others. And when that is the, you know, thing that is the most uh, kind of exciting thing that I, you know, see on a, on a uh, regular basis, especially, uh, you know, in this kind of teaching work that I do. And, you know, also I have to talk about um, Grayson Dart, who is a, a family medicine doctor. I should have brought him up earlier, who finished his um, family medicine training and board certification, uh, uh, I guess it's a, uh, almost two years ago now, a year and a half ago, and just couldn't, was, he went through the same, a similar waking up process and didn't even want to take his first job as a regular doctor out of training. And so he began, you know, seeking guidance and just doing some side, non-clinical side work to get by for a while. And um, he eventually found me and asked for mentorship. And I ultimately took him on and as the sort of first, uh, you know, candidate in this apprentice program, like kind of like a, a fellowship mm -hmm. for natural healing. And um, seeing him develop and, uh, you know, and seeing him also like appreciate the, the clients having amazing success stories has been a really, you know, proud and exciting uh, process for me. And I want to, you know, expand that um, in the future. So, you know, if there are any doctors out there who are opening up and want to find out and learn about a different way, uh, you know, please do reach out. That's amazing. Yeah, we'll, we'll have all your information on the show notes and everything. Um, yeah, there's a there's the one thing I really, really love, and it's kind of what you've been talking about, and it lights me up as well, is that seeing that ripple effect, you know, it starts at the individual, you make that change, and then how does that impact the community? How does it impact the family? How does that then impact society? And so, you know, I, I am an advocate of individualism, of personal responsibility and what and what can happen um, uh, to to your entire environment when you do take responsibility and you and you make these decisions. Um, I wanted to share a quote that I've I've had in my one of my email signatures. I, I saw it on a magazine like I don't even know now, maybe 17 years ago. And um, I think you'd appreciate it. But let's see. It's uh, when health is absent, we wisdom cannot reveal itself. Art cannot become manifest. Strength cannot be exerted. Wealth is useless, and reason is powerless. Um, it's attributed to Herophilus or Herophilus, uh, the ancient Greek, 300 BC, and it's it's a quote that has guided me on my own path, you know, and it's like has has made me have health be the umbrella or the foundation. Uh, and again, like Joel said, it's like we're not really educated in school 
unless our parents are into this stuff, and even then the children rebel, you know, we don't, we're not learning about our bodies. We're not really learning about our biology. We're not learning about good food. And, and it really starts so early on. Um, so I'm curious your thoughts on that. Like, I know there's a lot more movement now. People are taking, taking their children out of um, the conventional academic system and they're homeschooling more. And, um, you know, I think that's providing an opportunity for this kind of knowledge to filter into to children at a young age. Well, you know, the, uh, the globalist groups know that children are the key, that you have to work with them to change things for the next generation. And uh, we have to recognize that and, and take control of our own families. You know, we need to be the ones to raise uh, and teach our children. So, you know, I s definitely support all the parents who are doing this. I've been um, doing this my, myself as well. And I actually, you know, love to talk about this topic because it is really an opportunity for the kids to learn in a much more natural and powerful way. Like they can actually learn uh, much faster and much more material uh, than they're given credit for or allowed to in the you know public compulsory schooling systems. And uh, even in private school, I mean, when my kids started homeschooling, we it was a pretty hands off, but you know, right away, they just like shot up in many things, like the ability to read, jumping at, you know, grades ahead in math, like, you know, it's, oh, this is too easy. And it's like, they, they wouldn't say that in the school. They would just, you know, do what everybody's doing. But, you know, at home, it was like, wow, um, you know, what a difference. And then, of course, there's, when you're around the kids all the time, there's all kinds of teaching opportunities when they're curious and this is the culture of your family. So, you know, they might be independently, you know, doing their uh, kind of learning work, you know, their book work, and then we come together for a meal, even though, you know, I'm working too, simultaneously they are, but then we come together with a meal. So now there's an opportunity to, to talk about nutrition and health. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, if you talk to my kids, they know a heck of a lot about that. Um, they even criticize other adults. <laughs> um, you know, like when we get together at family gatherings and stuff, they, they see the, the misinformation that a lot of people have. Right. So, so of course, now you don't have to know all the answers yourself. Obviously, like I spend my life studying nutrition and health. So I have that knowledge uh, readily available. And that's why I, I sometimes work with um, people, uh, clients who in developing homeschool curriculum for health. Mm -hmm. uh, I've consulted with one uh, um, private school on that as well, uh, because, and, and I'm planning to write a book on, on nutrition and, and diet also. Uh, but, you know, that's going to take a little time. Uh, but there are many, many, you know, it's hard to find the right reputable discerning resources, especially on nutrition, but the information's definitely out there. Um, and it's important. Like actually, you know, an organization like the Weston A. Price Foundation uh, would be a, a really good resource uh, for many families who are open to uh, an omnivorous type of diet because they just have, you know, tons of information, books, uh, conferences, and uh, local chapters that, you know, can help you with that kind of thing because that's kind of what they specialize in. So, you know, learning about those kind of resources and how do you get, um, you know, your kids exposed to that or uh, materials that are appropriate for their level. Yeah. 
you hit the nail on the head when you think about the, the globalists, these architects of control, whatever you want to call them. Like, you know, if you get to the kids early on, you know, you can have a huge impact on them. You know, you look at the medical system, you look at the education system, you look at advertising, you know, you look at some of the movies that are out there, you know, how they can plant these ideas. You know, it is, it is a form of programming um, into these children that impact them throughout their lives. And and then, you know, let's say there is a parent sometime who's speaking out. They're like, well, my parent doesn't know any better than the celebrity, doesn't know better than the celebrity on the TV or or the the way they've been slowly being indoctrinated. So it's so important. Again, I say this as a non-parent, Joel's a parent. Um, you know, we're not just, it's not just about the food we eat. You know, what is our consciousness feeding on? You know, yeah, what music are we listening to? Yeah. What movies are we watching? You know, what's what what you know, it's so easy for a subconscious to be programmed by anything we see. When I, my children were younger, um, you know, like uh, kind of three, four years old, um, uh, their mother and I allowed them to watch some TV. And, but we observed um, that they got in this like trance-like state in front of the TV, that they'd be staring at it, sitting still, like, they would ignore their bodily functions, I think, during this. But if you tried to talk to them, it, it was impossible to get their attention. They completely ignored you. And like, even if you, you know, went right in front of their face, they still, they would go like this um, to see the TV. And you'd have to like turn it off. If you turn it off, you could then they'd talk to you, right? And this bothered Offer us. Tantrum. Yep. <laughs> right? Because it, it really was that they were hypnotized. It seemed mm. like they were hypnotized. And so... We started looking at the content, like the plots of uh, the shows, you know, and we already kind of screened the shows, um, mm -hmm. you know, that we in a way that we thought was reasonable. But we saw this pattern that there was always a hero and a villain and they resolved it by violence. And the hero usually won. Right. And and it was like, but they didn't all fight. It was only like this one designated hero fought for everybody. And I was thinking about it. That's like the recipe for all of the wars that the U.S. conducts itself. Right. That it's always um, it's not us. It's the army. They're the hero. They go to the foreign country and they bring democracy to the you know tyranny that existed before. Now, we, we knew at that point that that's not really what happened. That's just the story that they tell. But, but we saw how these children's shows were essentially creating acceptance and even like worship of that hero story, right? It's not the hero's journey that we're talking about tonight, right? It's a little bit different. Uh, we don't want people to confuse that. But this kind of a story, right, was ex them accepting it so that later on, they're just used to wars and that, that, that it's a necessity and that that's how the good guys triumph, right? And so that's when we said, all right, uh, no more TV. Yeah. It's such, it's such a big piece. You know, and I know there's lots of people that have done deeper, deeper dives of research on how, you know, Hollywood or how different movies are used to, to um, impact the population. Um, so yeah, again, like what are you, where music, are you putting your energy? And music too. Yeah, where are you putting your energy? You know, that's that's so important. So, yeah, that's right. So you know, unplug, um, good old fashioned books like on paper. Mm -hmm. um, you know, b books that have valuable information. Getting outdoors, doing you know activities, learning about nature doing work like growing growing food and and horticulture 
you know, uh, building things like that. That's the kind of activities that will bring about, you know, someone on a path that they're going to achieve amazing things in life and that they're going to be great members of their family and of their community and bring about, you know, the, the true potential of humanity. Yeah. How, how can you respect nature uh, as a, as healing if you're so removed from it? You know, like so many people are, are living in, in these smart cities or in these concrete jungles and on their devices 24 seven. And, you know, something I say often, obviously I'm not perfect. I'm on my phone. I'm on my devices. I utilize them for, um, you know, beneficial purposes. And sometimes I spend more time on them, but yet like going out, listening to the sounds of nature, being by a tree, being in the quiet, going for a hike, you know, what does that do to your nervous system? What does that do to, um, even what we talked about earlier about, let's say some event happens in your life and the relationship ended, like you need to make space for introspection for even to even contemplate, Hey, what did I do wrong? You know, how can I be better? But if you're constantly being distracted at every angle because your gaze is external as opposed to internal, you know, it's a recipe for stagnancy. It's a recipe for mediocrity. It's a recipe for repeating the patterns over and over again and wondering why your life isn't changing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm glad you bring up the sort of concrete jungle jungle because the, you know, the, the demographic uh, change of urbanification, right, where people from being spread out all move to concentrated population centers and cities. You know, of course, nowadays that's touted as very green and all that, but it, it's so ironic because it totally does separate, like, look how much green space there is in a city. There's just little dots here and there, you know, from an aerial view and virtually every surface that you interact with is artificial. Right. Mm -hmm. You can't even, um, you know, step on the negative charge of the Earth's surface anywhere. <laughs> and but in addition to separating us from nature, it also separated extended families because these urban centers are centers of commerce. Right. And then that led to this kind of thing of individuals having to be relocated all the time for work. Right. All the works in the cities, if you live in the country, you can't participate. And so you have to move to the cities and that means you have to leave, you know, your aunts and grandparents and cousins. And then that means that the support network of that community, the ability to collective rate, collectively raise the next generation, right? Cause you have, you know, three mothers that are sisters and cousins, uh, right. And then you got four uncles. And so, you know, one uncle, you know, knows, uh, this one skill really well. And, you know, one of the one of the aunts is an amazing cook and, you know, teaches all the kids and another one knows how to preserve food. Right. So we, we've lost all of that and, and just become more and more dependent. Uh, so dependent, it's almost as if adults are like children that they can't do things for themselves. They don't understand how things work. They're not capable of fixing things, of making things, creating things, running businesses, uh, right. All of these, all of these aspects. Yeah. I lived in New York City for nine years. I moved out to Los Angeles almost 10 years ago. And my wife and I relocated to Topanga Canyon. So we're surrounded by nature. And even that that initial move here, it was like, whoa, like there's like black widow spiders everywhere. And there's all these different things and shit's breaking and nature and quiet. So it was new when you when you live in an urban environment for over 
you know, around 20 years. Now, granted, I traveled a little bit. I spent time in nature. But in terms of my day to day reality, it wasn't that. And so it's like, how do you how do you like reacclimate to that, which your body ultimately knows, you know, it, 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 when it's in those environments, it knows like this is home. And that's why people do go on vacation or they go forest bathe. And they, when they go for a hike, they're like, ah, they just yeah. feel so much better. Yeah. I, I've had that experience many times. Yeah. Joel, you got a final question for, uh, Sure. Well, I'm I'm wondering if um you have a final message for our audience. If there's you know one thing that you really want to leave people with, what would that be? Well, I, I think it's really just about um you know taking charge and uh, being your own health authority. Uh, that you all have the ability, um, the power, um, and the strength. Really, I mean, we as men and women have so much more than we really believe about ourselves um, that we can um, achieve through our efforts that we can understand through our curiosity. And I want, you know, everyone out there to feel that empowerment and to take the first step, you know, into doing something to bring about better functioning, right, to meet your goals or better health. You're an absolute warrior, Andy. There's no doubt about that. Thank you for the path you've walked. We truly honor it. And thank you for your time today. How can our listeners find you? What do you have available? And if they want to connect deeper, where should they go? Yeah, well, I encourage everyone to sign up for my newsletter at andrewkaufmanmd.com. And um, I am uh, now writing personally all the messages. And that's how you can know uh, what I have going on. And I'm really uh, excited about uh, a webinar that I have coming up um, on December 3rd that's called Heavy Metal Detoxification, a Natural Approach, where I'm going to provide all of my uh, research about, you know, where metals come from, how they get in our body, how they may uh, be compromising your health and functional abilities. And then I'm going to lay out an approach using nature that's really comprehensive to um, and supported by peer-reviewed medical research. It's really fascinating that there is actually a fair amount of research on some natural healing plants and minerals. Uh, It's just not practiced by any doctor anywhere. Um, But I'm going to tell you about what those are and and exactly how to use them uh, to not just be able to remove metals, but these things have actually been shown to reverse damage to the organs, even the brain and kidneys, something like cilantro. It's, it's really amazing. So I'm excited uh, about that um, uh, program. And you can uh, learn about that at terrainthefilm.com, as well as on andrewkaufmanmd.com. And uh, we're going to be doing a, a free screening, actually, of Terrain the Film this weekend um, as a uh, sort of Thanksgiving uh, gift to everyone to express our gratitude. And uh, so I encourage everyone to check that out if you haven't seen it already. It talks about, you know, the, the shift from the false germ theory and virus theory into this new realm of what, what we might call terrain-based medicine. Hmm. Amazing. Andy, thank, yeah, thank you so much, man. Uh, it's nice to finally connect with you. I'm actually looking forward to growing some cilantro uh, in our garden soon. So uh, looking forward to anyone who's listening to this check out uh, Dr. Kaufman's work, uh, get on the newsletter and, um, and check the webinar. It sounds exciting. Thank you so much for being here. 
And uh, to our listeners, we'll see you next time. Take care. Smoking mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in a time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms, cause they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward in evolution to a place where we can share our confusions. Yeah, 450 BC, I'm sharing tea with confusion.